This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Well, to absolutely nobody's surprise, another mass shooting took place in America. This time at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee, by a former student who murdered a total of six people, three of them being children. Just horrific. Now, the weapons used to carry out this massacre were purchased legally. The attack was premeditated. The shooter had a manifesto and all and was ultimately shot and killed by police at the scene. Now, as desensitized as we all are to mass shootings, given how regularly they occur in this country, it is never, ever easy to learn about the needless slaughter of children ever. I will never grow numb to that. This doesn't change the fact that we're all exhausted from having the same conversation that we always have whenever there's a new mass shooting. Reasonable people will point out the need for gun regulations, the right will predictably obfuscate about the role that guns play while offering thoughts and prayers, and absolutely nobody expects anything from Congress. And the same cycle repeats as soon as the next mass shooting starts, once we kind of move on from the last one. It's just really tiring. And even Republican lawmakers seem exhausted and they're not even pretending anymore. For example, Representative Tim Burchett admitted that his party has absolutely no plans to fix this issue. So it's, it's a horrible, horrible situation, and we're not gonna fix it. Criminals are gonna be criminals, and my daddy fought in the Second World War, fought in the Pacific, fought the Japanese, and he told me, he said, buddy, he said, if somebody wants to take you out and doesn't mind losing their life, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do about it. His response reads like a satirical Onion article. No way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. Yeah. Now, just for fun, let's juxtapose his stance on drag queens with mass shootings and see if there's any differences we can spot. We don't put up with that, that, that crap in Tennessee, and we should. We're not going to fix it. Criminals are going to be criminals. See, when it comes to gun violence, unfortunately, there's just nothing that we can do. But drag queens, however, well, Dagnabbit, we're not going to put up with that. We have to do something about that. See, I need every single person who's watching this video to understand that these mass shootings are a policy choice. They are a policy choice. And the right has given up the pretense that they care even a little bit. They're done trying to placate us. They refuse to even support solutions that they've proposed previously. For example, remember how they used to try to blame mental health instead of guns, but then the overwhelming majority of Republicans in Congress voted against funding for mental health services in schools? I, for one, remember that. Remember how they used to blame violent video games all the time? Well, nobody buys that excuse anymore either since video games are no longer some niche hobby for nerds in their parents' basements. We all play them. So those excuses they no longer fool the masses. So when all of your excuses and scapegoats go out the window, what do you do? Well, that's easy. You find a new one. There's an endless supply of things to blame besides guns, right? And this time, it's trans people. In fact, 
all trans people because that's who the right's trying to blame instead of guns. For example, the Rupert Murdoch-owned New York Post reported transgender killer targets Christian school. I wonder what message they're trying to send here. And Fox News also didn't miss the opportunity to call this an attack on faith and accuse the left of defending the murderer, believe it or not, while shoehorning in trans acceptance as part of the reason why the shooter was motivated to commit mass murder. And of course, you know, since the trans killer reportedly resented the Christian school, maybe it's just a matter of time before another Christian-hating trans person targets more innocent people. They're not even trying to be subtle. Now, I just want to first point out how ironic it is that the right is claiming that the left is defending a mass shooter, considering that the right wing's response to the Club Q shooting was basically, well, I mean, they were asking for it. That was just a couple of months ago. We all remember it. In fact, let's look back at a couple of tweets from Tim Pool specifically. Quote, we shouldn't tolerate pedophiles grooming kids. Club Q had a grooming event. He also wrote, people keep calling for wood shippers, and this is what happens. In other words, it's their fault. They had it coming. Fuck around and find out, right, Tim? He falsely accused them of being pedophiles to justify their murders. And now, the same people who rationalized mass murder of queer people is turning around and accusing the left of defending a mass shooter. It doesn't get any more ironic than that. That's what you guys do. Now, second of all, why is the shooter's identity suddenly relevant to the right? There are literally hundreds of mass shootings every single year in America by cis straight white men, and they never bring up the shooter's identity. But when a trans person does it, all of a sudden, it's relevant. The question is, why? Why is the identity of mass shooters suddenly relevant? Well, it's because the right is obviously trying to exploit this tragedy in order to make you think that all trans people are dangerous. For example, Twitter user CatTurd pointed out these shootings that were supposedly done by trans people. Be afraid. Be very afraid is the message here. Matt Walsh used this tragedy to make a broader point about all trans people as well, saying, I came to the conclusion years ago that the trans movement is the greatest evil our country faces. I only become more and more sure of this fact with each passing day and more and more determined to oppose it until my last breath. Even the chief twit himself, Elon Musk, responded with an exclamation point to a post from right-wing propagandist Benny Johnson, who argues the modern trans movement is radicalizing activists into terrorists. The quartering responded to Benny Johnson saying 0.5% of the population is committing nearly 100% of mass shootings lately. So the message is very clear. They want you to be afraid of trans people and think that all trans people are violent based on this. But if we're looking at the identities of mass shooters, well, Socked on Left put together this graph of high lethality mass shootings between 2018 and 2023. And as you can see, cis white men carry out the overwhelming majority of mass shootings. However, for some reason, the right isn't trying to demonize all cis white men. But if identity suddenly matters so much to right wingers, why not point that out? Why not ask how cis white men in America are getting radicalized into committing all of these mass shootings given that they occur so frequently. We know why they're not asking this question. Now, regardless of the shooter's identity, the underlying solution does not change. It's the guns. We need gun regulations, period, end of story. We don't need to pretend as if it's violent movies or violent video games or a lack of prayer in schools or a lack of good guys with guns to stop the bad guys with guns. It's the guns. 
Let's stop entertaining the right's disingenuous excuses. It's obfuscation, nothing more than that. But the reason why the right is hyper-focused on the identity of the shooter only in this instance is because they're trying to exploit this tragedy to justify further violence against all trans people. It's a strategy right out of the Nazis playbook. And I want to get to some responses from people on Twitter who eloquently pointed this out. Policy analyst Daryl Owens says the parallels between the Nazis and their sympathizer media fanatically focusing on Jews who were 0.75% of the population leading up to the Holocaust and the US right focusing on trans people who are 0.5% of the population are genuinely terrifying. He's absolutely correct. And as Vosh points out, thousands and thousands of mass shootings from cis people pass without incident a small handful from trans people and we get this they will kill you if they get the chance do not let your guard down and he is absolutely correct about that this is not hyperbole hunter avalon writes conservatives only like seven black people are killed every year by police what's the big deal also conservatives over the last six years four shootings were carried out by people who weren't cis this is a massive problem that needs to be addressed exactly the hypocrisy is so brazen also lance from the surface points out after the charleston shooting where nine black americans were slaughtered by a white supremacist fox news immediately spun the narrative that it wasn't a hate crime but an attack on christianity now the nashville shooting is both an attack on christianity and was trans ideology of course and last but certainly not least hassan piker points out over the last five years 2,840 plus mass shootings have occurred in the U.S. Three of those shooters have been trans. Guns are the number one killer of children between the ages of 1 and 18, and the right are salivating over a school shooter being trans to deflect away from the main issue, ease of access to weapons. Exactly. He is exactly correct. So we see through you, right-wingers. We know exactly what you're doing here, and it's despicable. No, we're not going to let you derail the conversation as you always do whenever there's a mass shooting. If you truly cared about the lives of innocent people and children, you'd advocate for one thing and one thing only, gun regulations. But since you never do that, shut the fuck up. You don't need to feign concern over dead children when we know you don't give a shit. Spare us the theatrics. You never cared about dead children. Now, a Harvard University professor named Juliette Kaiman explained how identity of the suspect doesn't suddenly change the fact that the lowest common denominator, unsurprisingly, is guns in all of these mass shootings. So each of these cases is always going to have a particular difference, right? Whether it's uh, uh, someone is angry at their father or someone had something happen at the school. And this is a unique case, and we have to be sensitive about it to the extent that Audrey Hale identified as a woman. We do not see mass shooters uh, who are female, especially in particular school shooting uh, murderers. Those, that is, that is, uh, uh, this is actually, I think, the first time that I can remember. I know I was on air yesterday stating the same. And so that uniqueness is obviously going to go to only one part of this, right? Each of these school shootings has motive and means. Motive goes to the particular person. What's their mental health uh, situation? What happened at the school? Why did they choose that target? Uh, as Andrew was saying, what clues did they leave behind? What was their community seeing? And then the means. And then that's when you get the connectivity, right? That's when you start to see these are all starting to look the same, right? I sort of think now, like, we don't own guns in this country. Guns own us at this stage. And this is where we have to now focus on 
an important part of, of an agenda, which includes mental health, protecting our kids, fortifying schools, but also the connectivity, which is a certain kind of gun. I, I you know, look, pronouns, pronouns do not kill children, right? People with guns kill children, and it's going to be a distraction in our coverage and keep us from what we now know, which is each of these cases has a similarity uh, more than any difference. That is exactly correct. To try to disaggregate guns from gun violence feels like gaslighting, and that's because it is. And the right has been doing this to us forever. But to then shoehorn in anti-trans hysteria into the conversation as well, it just makes their concern trolling feel so much more vile this time. They are truly morally bankrupt individuals, and the fact that anyone in this country takes them seriously is genuinely astonishing to me. But I want to recenter the conversation on the actual issue, which is gun violence and guns. And I want to leave you with this poignant speech by freshman Congressman Maxwell Frost, who calls out the corrupt cowards bought off by the gun industry, who are the ones who are perpetuating this problem by refusing to take action. Mr. Speaker, I rise today because I am furious. Angry that three kids died today in Nashville, Tennessee. Angry that hundreds of parents had to cry their eyes out today, not knowing if their child would come home from school. And angry that we have to live day after day when we turn on the news to see rampant gun violence claiming life after life. And all of this is because politicians in this chamber that have been bought and paid for by the NRA, that put profits over people, over human lives, Cowards who wasted our time last week, passing a parental bill of rights, not giving a damn about the rights of children to be able to go to their classroom without the fear of being gunned down due to senseless gun violence. It is likely that at this moment, the next mass shooter is planning their shooting. What will this chamber do about it? I filed my last bill last week to simply create a federal office of gun violence prevention. Three kids are dead today. And every day that we wait, a hundred more people die. I pray to God that there are some Republicans in this chamber that can help support my legislation to save lives. I yield back my time. In 2022, Utah, like many Republican-controlled states, decided to go on a book-banning spree, and one school district in Utah removed more than 50 books from school libraries, most of those books being LGBTQ plus affirming material. Now, towards the end of the year, Utah state lawmaker Ken Ivory, this individual here, authored legislation that expanded this effort by giving parents the authority to challenge and potentially remove books from schools that are indecent and or contain pornographic material. Now, this bill was actually passed recently and signed into law last week by Utah's governor. Now, this entire effort was basically spearheaded by one far-right organization called Utah Parents United, and their ultimate goal is to ban any LGBTQ plus related books or content that predominantly features people of color. And they won. They got what they wanted, but this victory comes at a cost because this group and the lawmaker who sponsored this legislation seemingly didn't anticipate the ways in which this could come back to bite them. And I say this because one of the first books being challenged is the Holy Bible. Now, because of this law, the district may be forced to remove the Bible from school libraries. The Salt Lake Tribune reports, 
Frustrated by the books being removed from school libraries, a Utah parent says there's one that hasn't been challenged yet, but that they believe should be for being one of the most sex-ridden books around. So they've submitted a request for their school district in Davis County to now review the Bible for any inappropriate content. Quote, incest, onanism, bestiality, prostitution, genital mutilation, fellatio, dildos, rape, and even infanticide, the parent wrote in their request, listing topics they found concerning in the religious text. You'll no doubt find that the Bible, under Utah Code, section 76101227, has no serious values for minors because it's pornographic by our new definition. District spokesperson Christopher Williams repeated what he's told other media outlets, Quote, we don't differentiate between one request and another. We see that as the work that we do. He said the Bible challenge has been given to a committee to review. The process typically takes 60 days, but Williams said the committee is not done with this request due to a backlog as more parents have been questioning books. So apparently lots of parents want to ban books, but one of those books is uh, the Bible. Now this request was submitted and if it's approved, then the Bible would indeed be removed from at least one high school in this district, Davis High School. And the school district is taking this request seriously, as they stated, because they are legally required to do that. And we just got a snippet of the parents' request from that article, but I think it's worth reading the entire letter. It's just two paragraphs, basically. Uh, but it's so good to read because this is exactly what parents around the country need to do. This is a classic case of malicious compliance, and this parent here is onto something. So the parent writes, I thank the Utah legislature and Utah Parents United for making this bad faith process so much easier and way more efficient. Now we can all ban books, and you don't even need to read them or be accurate about it. Heck, you don't even need to see the book. Seeding our children's education, First Amendment rights, and library access to a white supremacist hate group like Utah Parents United seems like a wonderful idea for a school district literally under investigation for being racist. I noticed there's a gap though. Utah Parents United left off one of the most sex-ridden books around, the Bible. Incest, onanism, bestiality, prostitution, genital mutilation, fellatio, dildos, rape, and even infanticide. You'll no doubt find that the Bible under Utah Code section 76101227 has, quote, no serious values for minors because it's pornographic by our new definition. Get this porn out of our schools. If the books that have been banned so far are any indication for way lesser offenses, this should be a slam dunk. And that right there, my friends, is how it's done. And according to this law, well, the Bible shouldn't even be a question. They're looking into it currently, but there is, without a doubt, pornographic and indecent content in that book. So since the law makes no exceptions for holy books, unfortunately for them, the Bible is fair game and it may very well be removed because of their law. Now, what's even more hilarious about this story is the response from the author of Utah's book ban. Because when he gave parents the authority to propose book bans, he very clearly didn't foresee the Bible being one of the books that a parent would challenge. And as a result, he is, quote, very sad that one parent would abuse the process. And he even says that this parent who submitted this challenge to the Bible is wasting the district's time because apparently all of the other book bans, that's not wasting the district's time but a book that he doesn't want banned well that's a waste of time 
So as LGBTQ Nation reports, Utah State Representative Ken Ivory, who sponsored HB 374, described the request as a political stunt that would drain school resources. <laughs> there was a purpose to the bill and this kind of stuff. It's very unfortunate, he said. There are any number of studies that directly link sexualization and hypersexualization with sexual exploitation and abuse. Certainly, those are things we don't want in schools. For people to minimize and to make a mockery of this is very sad he complained <laughs> the audacity of him how dare this parent make a mockery of the process because of course when we passed this legislation we didn't expect the parent to propose a ban to a book that we like and even though the bible does objectively contain content that by the definition of our law would obviously be pornographic and indecent well I like that book, so let's not ban that book. Let's just ban the books that I don't like. Mm, sorry, it doesn't work that way. Based on the law that you wrote, the Bible is fair game. He just didn't like that something that he prefers in schools is now being challenged. And what I love is that I'm assuming the same people who don't want the Bible banned, who support book bans, is going to be mad about this one as well. This book is called Sex. If you're scared of the truth, don't read this. And this book is being challenged because of the provocative title, but the book is actually about abstinence. But because the title is very obviously indecent or could be perceived to be indecent, well, this also could be removed from school shelves for violating Utah law. Sorry, evangelicals, that's another L for you. So I think I think that this is an obvious point to make, but I'm going to make this point anyway, because it's really important. Whenever there's a state that has laws like this, this is what parents need to do. Challenge the Bible, because this is how you use their censorious laws against them. You challenge the material that you know they hold most near and dear to their hearts. And when they see how censorship laws go both ways, well, maybe that'll give them a little bit of pause before passing these kinds of draconian censorious laws in the first place. But either way, the parent here is absolutely brilliant, well played. And again, if you live in a district that allows parents to challenge books, priority number one for you is challenging the Bible. So even though people like Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles have really large platforms and transphobic bigots are especially loud on social media, that doesn't change the fact that most Americans are not buying this anti-trans hysteria and they're not falling for anti-trans propaganda by and large in red states too. For example, a Mason-Dixon poll released in late February found that 71% of Kentucky residents oppose laws banning gender-affirming care for minors, and yes, that includes 62% of Republican Party voters. Now, at the national level, voters are a little bit more divided based on party affiliation than people in Kentucky, at least according to this poll conducted by NPR and Ipsos, but they found back in 2022 that only 31% of Americans support bans on gender-affirming care for trans youth, while 47% oppose them, and 21% aren't even familiar with this issue at all. So after Republicans have spent nearly two years preaching about parental autonomy and parental rights, the sentiment among the American population seems to be that Parents should have the right to make decisions about their child when it comes to health care. 
and that includes gender-affirming care. Now, since 2022, Republicans have been able to get their own base more on board with anti-trans hysteria, excluding exceptions like Kentucky. But overall, American opposition towards bans on gender-affirming care has actually increased since the right ramped up their hysteria. Ari Drennan shared the results from this Grinnell College national poll conducted by Selzer & Co. And as you can see, a majority of Americans oppose bans on gender-affirming care. This includes 78% of Democrats and 52% of independents. And while anti-trans propagandists have successfully driven up support for these bans among the GOP's base, it seemingly backfired among the general population and opposition to these bans have actually grown. And I think this is because most Americans aren't monsters. When they're informed about how gender-affirming care is medically necessary, deemed such by the experts, and how it reduces suicidality, well, of course they support it. Because normal working-class Americans don't have a political or career incentive to remain performatively opposed to gender-affirming care after learning that it saves lives. But the Republicans, who spend an unusual amount of time regularly peddling transphobia, couldn't fight past the cognitive dissonance that this poll gave them. And uh, they decided to all suddenly become experts in polling methodology, and they tried to debunk it. And as you could expect, that didn't go too well. For example, Matt Walsh claims that the pollster doesn't provide respondents with enough information, explaining, drop the gender-affirming care euphemism and ask people how they feel about the sterilization and chemical castration of children, then come back and let us see the results. Now, I, for one, think that including more information in polls is not a bad thing, but the reason why legitimate pollsters would not word a poll that way is one because it's bullshit and two what you're calling for is obviously push polling where you purposefully phrase a question in a particular manner to generate a specific response usually to suit your narrative polls have to be worded in a neutral way in order to actually gauge people's feelings but matt walsh doesn't care about that he actually wants his feelings to be affirmed and since this poll doesn't do that well he's triggered but there's more because professional pollster cat turd 2 whose twitter poll was shared by the maga war room yes this is a real graphic to my knowledge and was even cited by donald trump himself on truth social and also at a rally 69. says that the grinnell college poll was quote bullshit with three exclamation points and you know as someone who conducts reputable scientific polls on twitter i take it that they definitely know what they're talking about now the right-wing astroturfed group gays against groomers took issue with the sampling size stating that 1000 adults is not representative of the entire nation now they then retweeted a much more accurate twitter poll by user lb who found that 78.9 percent of their right wing followers are against gender affirming care and since this poll aligns with their beliefs well it's of course more accurate now i feel like this is obvious but this is a poll it's not supposed to be a fucking census and ari pointed this out too you literally can't ask every single person in the country their thoughts about something so what do you do you get a sample that's representative of the general population so that when you extrapolate and you average the results of other polls, you're able to reasonably gauge where the public is at with regards to a particular issue. This is how 
all reputable polls work, including ones that they agree with, where it shows that Trump is in the lead and beating DeSantis. A poll's methodology isn't suddenly flawed because you don't like it. You just have cognitive dissonance that you're refusing to fight past. But there's more. This person simply responded to the poll saying that the person who shared it sounds, quote, vaccinated, which I guess is, is you know, that's reasonable. This sounds like a solid counter argument. And there were lots of other people who took issue with the wording as well, such as William A. Jacobson, who pays $8 a month for his Twitter checkmark. And this individual agrees with Matt Walsh that the poll is basically biased because it wasn't worded in a biased way so as to produce results that he'd agree with. Sonia Richardson, who also pays $8 a month for her Twitter checkmark, agrees with Cat Turd that, you know, the entire poll is just bullshit, so it's a flat-out lie. I refuse to believe this. <laughs> it's it's unequivocally wrong. Alex, who pays $8 a month for his Twitter checkmark, rejects the finding that 78% of Democrats feel this way. And this Twitter user who pays for his blue checkmark claims that this poll is actually an example of selective and manipulated statistics. See, because Grinnell would be reputable only if they exclusively poll Republicans and ask them if chopping off kids' dicks is good or bad. That would constitute a reputable poll, according to these dumb fucks. Sherry S., who also pays $8 a month for her Twitter checkmark, says, lie harder. Hank, who pays $8 a month for his Twitter checkmark, calls it total and utter bullshit. And finally, TK Eagle, who also pays $8 a month for their Twitter checkmark, says, yeah, I don't believe this for a second, liar. Prove it. They have proven it. It's just you you don't want to believe it. Now, you might be thinking, well, Mike, a lot of these responses that you shared are from people, accounts in particular, with zero engagement, no likes, no retweets. So why share them at all? Because that lack of engagement proves my point. Even on Twitter, they're in an echo chamber and they refuse to believe it. And despite how loud they might seem to all of us, they only represent a small minority of the population. But of course, these screenshots aren't an accurate sample of all of Twitter or even motherfuckers who pay for Twitter, okay? But the point is that these folks refuse to accept that everyone doesn't agree with them. Most people, in fact, disagree with them. With that being said, the transphobes are having to grapple with the reality that they are once again on the wrong side of history. And that's what we're seeing. The meltdown is their form of cope, I guess. But regardless of what they or the general public thinks, it really doesn't matter in the end because civil rights are non-negotiable. So even if they're able to turn public opinion against trans people, that doesn't change the fact that civil rights should be guaranteed because, I mean, look at the history. The overwhelming majority of Americans were once against gay marriage. That didn't mean that gay couples shouldn't have been able to get gay married. You understand? So it really doesn't matter at the end of the day what they think and what Americans think, quite frankly. But still, it's nice to watch bigots cope after their bubbles are bursted because they assumed that everyone would accept their genocidal anti-trans bullshit. But in actuality, most Americans don't. Most Americans are focused on other things. They're not focused on policing the lives of trans people like Matt Walsh or Michael Knowles. And I'm sorry that the reality of this poll offends you, but facts don't care about your feelings, snowflakes. So shut the fuck up, get a hobby, and leave trans kids alone, you hate-mongering sociopathic cunts.
Since Elon Musk took over Twitter, the platform has gotten so much worse for a number of reasons. Hate speech is rampant, trolls are emboldened, celebrity accounts are falling victim to phishing scams, and basic functionality isn't even an expectation for most users at this point, given how frequent outages are. And none of this is surprising, at least with regard to basic functionality, considering that Elon Musk fired so many crucial engineers. But as bad as things are now, they're about to get much worse because Twitter is rolling out new changes in April. And like all previous changes that Elon Musk has announced, well, it seems like nobody is satisfied with these changes. On March 23rd, the official Twitter verified account announced that all legacy verified check marks will be removed unless you pay Ellen $8 a month. And apparently he didn't learn anything from the last verification debacle because this is going to create a system where abuse is rampant. As Monica Lewinsky points out, there are multiple users impersonating her currently, and one of them is even verified. She adds, in what universe is it fair to people who can suffer consequences for being impersonated? A lie travels halfway around the world before the truth even gets out the door. And she is exactly correct about that. I mean, what is the point of verification at this point other than to tell the world that you are embarrassingly paying for a website that's free? because it's not to verify identities, because the goal of verification, or so I thought anyways, was to reduce the amount of people impersonating public figures and people of interest. But I mean, if that's not the case, if it's a clout thing and normies want check marks too, that's fine. I have no problem with that. Extend verification to anyone who's able to confirm their identity using a phone number or something and voila. But you see, it's not about verifying accounts and reducing trolls or bots. It never has been. It's about Ellen making back the money that he lost by overpaying for Twitter. But it unsurprisingly gets worse because Ellen announced the worst change yet. Starting April 15th, only verified accounts will be eligible to be in For You recommendations. This is the only realistic way to address advanced AI bot swarms taking over. It is otherwise a hopeless losing battle. Voting in polls will require verification for same reason. Okay, this is idiotic for so many reasons. Because first of all, Twitter never limited what you see based on who you follow. So to implement this change means you are fundamentally changing what Twitter is. And it puts everyone into more of an echo chamber, which I think is really bad. Second of all, if he's trying to make money by coercing everyone into paying him $8 a month, that's just not the best way to do it, considering other social media websites, they found a way to be profitable. They use algorithms to boost engagement and keep people on the platforms for as long as they possibly can, which is enticing to advertisers because eyeballs are what attracts advertisers. So if Ellen foregoes the algorithm for the overwhelming majority of users who refuse to pay and just shows them the people who they're already following, that's going to likely reduce the overall engagement across the board and people won't be on Twitter for as long, which could in turn devalue ads even more, which is a problem for a platform that is hemorrhaging advertiser dollars. But after seeing how poorly this announcement was received, he backtracked in true Ellen fashion, writing, forgot to mention that accounts you follow directly will also be in For You since you have explicitly asked for them. Like I genuinely <laughs> cannot understand what he's doing here. Nobody can, even him. Now, I've referenced how trolls have been emboldened earlier in this video, and when you consider how the algorithm is seemingly boosting motherfuckers who pay for Twitter, and you look at 
who's buying these accounts, then you kind of begin to see why the platform has gotten much worse. In an article from Mashable, Matt Bender explains, researcher Travis Brown, who has been tracking Twitter Blue subscriptions since January, recently revealed around half of all Twitter users subscribed to Twitter Blue have less than 1,000 followers. That's approximately 220,132 paying subscribers. Furthermore, 78,059 paying Twitter Blue subscribers have less than 100 users following their account. That's 17.6 percent of all Twitter Blue subscribers. Breaking down follower counts even further, there are 2,270 paying Twitter Blue subscribers who have zero followers. That's a significant chunk of Twitter Blue subscribers being unable to crack even four digits worth of followers, even though some have subscribed, believing it would help boost the growth of their Twitter account. According to this data, Twitter Blue currently has a total of 444,435 paying subscribers. Accounting for the limitations of pulling this data using the Twitter API, Brown tells Mashable that he estimates that Twitter likely has around 475,000 paying subscribers. So, yeah. And I might add, based on my unscientific observation, mind you, that most of these paid Twitter users seem to be right-wingers and or Ellen Dick writers. And even with them seemingly being boosted in the algorithm, still, nobody wants to follow them. Thus, the overall Twitter experience will only continue to get worse if we're all seeing paid users over people who we actually want to see. And this is really sad because the days where we discover new people who we're not already following are numbered and we're only going to learn about new voices on Twitter who we're interested in learning about if one of the people we're already following happens to retweet them. So overall discoverability of new voices on the platform is going to be limited because of this change. And that doesn't even take into consideration the most petulant and downright bizarre changes that Ellen has made to the platform since taking it over. Not only is the algorithm boosting him after he cried to Twitter's engineers about Biden's Super Bowl post getting more engagement than his, but as Insider reports, 35 seemingly random VIP users are being boosted by the algorithm, and this includes LeBron James, Ben Shapiro, AOC, and fucking Cat Turd 2. It's just so weird, and I can't help but ask, why? Nobody knows why anything works the way that it does on Twitter, including Elon Musk. None of it makes sense. And also, he's boosting right-wing propagandists, but simultaneously elevating AOC's posts, who he has fought with. It just, none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. So in conclusion, Elon Musk is a fucking moron, and any simp who mistakenly thought that he was uniquely brilliant because he has money is learning the hard way that meritocracy is a myth. Money does not, contrary to popular belief, increase a person's inherent value, and it sure as shit doesn't mean someone's a genius. So in a way, I kind of appreciate Elon Musk educating the masses about the hubris and dumb fuckery of elites, because no, Elon Musk is not a genius, and he never was. We have a corporation worth some $113 billion, largely controlled by an individual worth some $4 billion, who are using their unlimited resources to do everything possible, legal and illegal, to deny these workers their constitutional right to form a union. The fundamental issue we are confronting today is whether we have a system of justice that applies to all, 
or whether billionaires and large corporations can break the law with impunity. I have read Mr. Schultz's comments to the media in which he expresses his strong anti-union views. As an American, Mr. Schultz is entitled to those views and any other views he holds. But even if he is a multi-billionaire and the head of a giant corporation, he is not entitled to break the law. You just watched a snippet of Chairman Bernie Sanders opening statement to a Senate hearing where he and other senators finally had the opportunity to confront Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz about his company's vicious union busting campaign. And this testimony comes after Schultz initially declined the Senate's invitation to testify, which is a uh, pretty bold to put it lightly. But after Sanders threatened to subpoena him, well, he begrudgingly showed up because he didn't really have a choice. It was either show up now or get subpoenaed and be forced to show up. Now, we're going to get to Bernie Sanders' direct questioning of him, but I first want to play a little bit more of the opening statement because it really is just outstanding. And Bernie Sanders here does not mince words in calling out their union-busting tactics. Over the past 18 months, Starbucks has waged the most aggressive and illegal union-busting campaign in the modern history of our country. That union-busting campaign has been led by Howard Schultz, the multi-billionaire founder and director of Starbucks, who is with us this morning only under the threat of subpoena. Let us be clear about the nature of Starbucks' vicious anti-union efforts. The National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, has filed over 80 complaints against Starbucks for violating federal labor law. There have been over 500 unfair labor practice, practice charges lodged against the company, and judges have found that Starbucks broke the law 130 times across six states since workers began organizing in the fall of 2021. These violations include the illegal firing of more than a dozen Starbucks workers for the crime of exercising their right to form a union and to collectively bargain for better wages, benefits, and working conditions. Since the first Starbucks union was certified more than 450 days ago in Buffalo, workers at more than 360 stores across 40 states have held union elections. 83% of these elections have resulted in a union victory, and today nearly 300 Starbucks coffee shops employing more than 7,000 workers have a union, despite Starbucks' aggressive anti-union efforts. But with nearly 300 shops voting to form a union, Starbucks has refused to sign a single first contract with the union. Not a single one. Think about that. Think about a multi-billion dollar company with unlimited resources, with all kinds of lawyers, advisors, consultants, and yet they have not yet signed one contract with any 
of their nearly 300 unionized shops. Just a few weeks ago, on March 1st, an administrative law judge found Starbucks guilty of, quote, egregious and widespread misconduct, end quote, which showed, quote, a general disregard for the employee's fundamental rights, end quote. In a 220-page ruling, this judge found that Starbucks illegally retaliated against employees for unionizing, promised improved pay and benefits if workers rejected the union, conducted illegal surveillance of pro-union workers, refused to hire prospective employees who supported the union, relocated union organizers to new stores, and overstaffed stores ahead of union votes, all clear violations of federal labor law. The judge also found that Starbucks, quote, widespread coercive behavior over six months had permeated every store in the Buffalo market, end quote. The judge ordered Starbucks to reinstate seven workers who were wrongfully terminated, reopen a pro-union store in Buffalo that was illegally shut down, and pay, quote, reasonable consequential damages, end quote, to more than two dozen Starbucks workers whose rights were violated by the company. And let us be clear, Starbucks' egregious union-busting campaign is not limited to Buffalo. It is happening all over America. So expectedly, Bernie Sanders brought the heat. Now, in anticipation of Howard Schultz playing dumb or obfuscating or downplaying his role in the company's aggressive union busting, Bernie Sanders released this 13-page document outlining every single instance of the company's illegal union busting tactics, coercive behavior, and lies the company has spread to repair their image as a good liberal company after going scorched earth against their own employees. But regardless of how incriminating this all looks, Howard Schultz seemingly did not break under pressure, unlike other CEOs who are grilled by U.S. senators, and he denied that Starbucks broke the law, which is an absurd claim to make, and Senator Sanders even had to remind him that you're under oath, so if you are knowingly lying, you could be charged with perjury. But despite that, Howard Schultz didn't really seem bothered at all. So let's watch Bernie Sanders directly question Howard Schultz. Do you understand that in America, workers have a fundamental right to join a union and collectively bargain to improve wages, benefits, and working conditions? Do you understand that? I understand, and we respect the right of every partner who wears a green apron, whether they choose to join a union or not. Are you aware that NLRB judges have ruled that Starbucks violated federal labor law over 100 times during the past 18 months, far more than any other corporation in America. Sir, Starbucks Coffee Company unequivocally, and let me set the tone for this very early on, has not broken the law. Okay. Are you aware that on March 1st, 2023, an administrative law judge found Starbucks guilty of, quote, egregious and widespread misconduct, end quote, widespread coercive behavior and showed, quote, a general disregard for the employee's fundamental rights, end quote, in a union organizing campaign that started in Buffalo, New York in 2021. Are you aware of that? I'm aware that those are allegations and Congress has created a process that we are following and we're confident that those allegations 
will be proven false. All right. Mr. Schultz, before answering the following questions, let me remind you that federal law at 18 U.S. Code Section 1001 prohibits knowingly and willfully making any fraudulent statement. I understand that. Were you ever informed of or involved in a decision to fire a worker who was part of a union organizing drive? I was not. Were you ever informed of or involved in a decision to discipline a worker in any way who was part of a union organizing drive? I was not. Have you ever threatened, coerced, or intimidated a worker for supporting a union? I've had conversations that could have been interpreted in a different way than I intended. That's up to the person who received the information that I spoke to him about. Will you commit to testifying in any trial where you personally are accused of breaking federal labor law, something that you have been accused of doing nearly 100 times since 2021? Mr. Chairman, let me say under oath, these are allegations and Starbucks has not broken the law. Words cannot describe how much I hate Howard Schultz. He just oozes smugness and very clearly has a superiority complex. And he's a rich man in the United States of America. So who can blame him, right? I mean, how often do we see rich people be held accountable for breaking the law? Worst case scenario, what, he gets a slap on the wrist for illegal union busting or even committing perjury? He knows nothing is going to happen to him, hence the confidence there. Now, that back and forth between him and Bernie Sanders continued for a while. Sanders asked him whether or not he complied or plans to comply with orders from the NLRB and whether or not he'll commit to negotiating with the more than 300 stores that voted to form a union. But Rather than focusing on that because it doesn't really go anywhere, Howard Schultz doesn't break, I want to look at Ed Marquis' testimony because he spends a significant chunk of time just badgering Schultz, and you can tell specifically towards the end of the clip that it was really getting under Schultz's skin. And this is a longer clip, but it's worth the watch. I got the chance this week to meet with Caitlin, who is a Starbucks employee from Gardner, Massachusetts. Like you, Caitlin cares deeply about Starbucks. She originally started working for the company in 2006 and came back to rejoin Starbucks in 2021. When she came back, she saw Starbucks similar to how you describe it in your testimony, a company that had lost its way. She saw a company that now only cared about money mm. at the expense of the health and well-being of its workers. So to help save the Starbucks she once knew and loved, Caitlin and her co-workers formed a union. They wanted to revive a wayward company, make your company better. But you vilify Caitlin and her colleagues for caring. You demonize them for participating in their fundamental right to organize. And worse, you and your company set out to punish Caitlin and her colleagues, withholding benefits and raises, cutting hours, and purposefully understaffing to harm their most dedicated partners. So when you give us 10 pages of testimony extolling the benefits that Starbucks offers its employees, that's not what I see. I see Caitlin. I see you squeezing the people who have made you rich with blatant disregard for the law, perhaps because you think if you can hire the lawyers and pay the union-busting consulting firms, you can get away with violating other people's rights, with disregarding their dignity, and with silencing working people in America. But here's the thing. 
If you can pay the lawyers and the consultants and the PR specialists, you can also pay the workers a fair wage. So you say that your father was unfairly fired after he was injured on the job. Your father had no rights, and your family paid the price. That is how your workers now feel. Can I respond, sir? 30 seconds. Only 30 seconds. I need more time for that. Well, I'm sorry. That's you all. Bring up my Every member here is. Bring up my father. You don't understand, sir. My father was a World War II veteran, fought for this country in the South Pacific. You don't understand. I understand yeah, completely. Me, Your me, father yeah. was. Can I finish, sir? Yes, sure. Yeah. Your father served our country yeah. and then a, the company he yeah. worked for. Can I respond, Chairman? Yes, please. Okay. I don't understand. Let me ask you a question, since you cited the union as the answer. Is there a union contract that you personally are aware of that provides comprehensive health insurance, equity in the form of stock option, free college tuition? Is there, at $17.50 and an average of $27 with benefits, are you aware of a union contract, sir, answer the question, of a, of a union contract that has those benefits, sir? Mr. Schultz. Are you aware? Mr. Schultz, here's your testimony. Looking oh, back, looking back, oh, it Mr. Is, Mr. looking Schultz. back, it is clear question. to prior to my return last April, the company had lost its way, that it had fallen under the dangerous I, influence I, of Wall Street short-termism that I had always tried I to I asked you a question, sir. <laughs> sir. You don't understand. Your testimony says that your own company yeah. lost its way, and it will lose its way again unless there's a okay. union in, there in a, to make Senator it Hassan, accountable. Thank you, in Senator Hassan. post-COVID environment. Many, many companies. Right. Mr. Schultz, Mr. Difficulty. Schultz, Senator Hassan, please. You don't understand. That was incredible. How dare you question me, the great Howard Schultz, CEO of Starbucks worth billions of dollars. Look, dude, like all of us, you shit, you eat. Even if we have a capitalistic society that props up people like you, your shit still stinks. So they don't like remembering that, like all of us, they're just human beings, right? So when you challenge them, though, after they've been surrounded by yes men and yes women for years, potentially decades, that's what happens. They melt down because they just can't tolerate any level of scrutiny. Now, it's interesting the excuse that he used for not supporting unions. He honestly believes, and many companies do, that existing benefits and comparatively higher pay is a solid defense for his company's union busting or a solid alternative to unionization altogether. But this is what companies say to convince workers that a union is unnecessary. And more and more workers are finding out that this line is bullshit. And the reason why folks like Howard Schultz are against unions is because as much as he claims he's paying his workers, he knows that workers would be paid more and treated better if they had unions. And what's a little bit ironic is that in the middle of Starbucks's union busting campaign, as they retaliate against their employees exercising their constitutional rights, they end up unwittingly demonstrating why unions are so important in the first place. Because these companies don't give a shit about their employees. They will chew them up and spit them out the second it's convenient to them. So as much as they claim that they care about their employees, well, you don't care enough to not retaliate against them for doing what they are constitutionally permitted to do. So in the end, it was satisfying to watch Howard Schultz get grilled for sure, uh, but 
There were, of course, Republican senators who tried to run interference for him, Mitt Romney being one of them, who also is a multimillionaire with an elevator in his mansion for his cars. You had Mark Wayne Mullen go back and forth with Bernie Sanders, saying that Bernie Sanders is demonizing rich people and Bernie Sanders is a millionaire himself. There was even a moment where Howard Schultz claimed that Bernie Sanders was using the word, or he implied that Bernie was using the word billionaire as a sort of pejorative. So there was a lot. There was some fireworks, but I wanted to show you the most most substantive portions where Howard Schultz was directly confronted for his company's lawbreaking. So even though you had some Republican senators try to run interference for Howard Schultz, at the end of the day, they're going to be the ones that look out of touch because, quite frankly, the masses just aren't falling for this pro-rich propaganda any longer. It is obvious to everyone that meritocracy does not exist. It's obvious that the American dream is dead. And what's left is a population increasingly desperate to finally get what they believe is owed to them. Fair treatment, fair employment. And these CEOs should honestly be thankful that workers are only demanding unions because with how poorly American workers have been treated for decades now, it's a surprise that they haven't broken out the pitchforks. Well, folks, it seems like we have another case of somebody being totally shocked that a leopard would eat their face after they voted for the leopards eating people's faces party. This time, it is a Republican lawmaker from Missouri named Chris Sander, who happens to be a gay man. And he's hoping that his Republican colleagues will support his effort to revise their state's constitution, which currently defines marriage as a union between one man and one woman. And I'm assuming he's doing this because in the event the Supreme Court overturns Obergefell v. Hodges, he wants to make sure that his marriage doesn't automatically get destroyed. Now, since marriage equality currently is already legal in Missouri, you'd think that this wouldn't be that big of a deal. Oh, but it is because Sander has now faced not one, but two censure votes in a month by his own party, all because he dared to try to amend the state's constitution to remove this bigoted language. As LGBTQ Nation reports, State Representative Chris Sander, Republican who represents Jackson County, faced a censure vote for the second time in a month because he has been vying to amend the state constitution's definition of marriage to a union of, quote, two individuals rather than a man and a woman. Quote, the mere fact that you want to change the wording from one man and one woman to two individuals is an abomination to mankind and to God himself, said Teresa McBride, vice chair of the Jackson County Republican Party in an email obtained by the Kansas City Star. The term two individuals could be defined and interpreted in many different ways and open the door for pedophiles to legally rape and physically harm children. That is disgusting and promoting an agenda as such is an abomination to our country. Yeah, so that's how they reacted to the prospect of their own colleague being equal under their state's constitution. As if being against their own colleague's civil rights wasn't bad enough, they have to take it a step further and suggest that he supports pedophilia as well. Republicans are such lovely people, aren't they? Listen, I have the perfect compromise, so everyone is happy. 
why don't we change the language to to adult individuals so that way there's no confusion about who this gay man thinks should be able to legally marry in his state and while you're at it you can legally prohibit marriages to anyone under 18 because according to the missouri bar there are various loopholes that allow child marriages in the state of missouri a child as young as 15 can get married if they obtain parental consent and children younger than 15 can even get married if they obtain a court order Thomas, a missionary at the International House of Prayer in Grandview, describes himself as a passionate lover of God and an advocate for government on earth as it is in heaven. Sounds very reasonable, Thomas claims. Uh, only the nations who believe Jesus is Lord are truly blessed. This is... <laughs> This is an actual official for the GOP. At the time, the Jackson County GOP Chair Mark Anthony Jones called the resolution dead on arrival and said censuring was not within the committee's scope of duties. According to Sander, following that first failed censure vote, party members agreed to form a committee to consider censuring Republican lawmaker or other punitive options in the future. The second resolution to censure Sander, also put forth by Thomas, was voted down on Monday. In a text to the Kansas City Star, Sander said the committee does not represent the beliefs of the majority of the party. Mm, are you sure about that? Because it seems to me like the entire party, both at the state and federal level, is in lockstep on this particular issue. It seems like there's no disagreement. It seems like you're the only one who disagrees. You are in the minority, unfortunately for you. Now, the votes to censure him failed, but the same committee agreed to a petition that individual members can sign to voice their disapproval, I guess, with this degeneracy that he's promoting. And that's not all. Committee member Dave Thomas, no, not the founder of Wendy's, the evangelical fuckface referenced in the article, filed a different petition to let any committee member censure someone for supporting marriage equality. So they failed here, but they're trying other ways to basically condemn their own colleague because he dared to ask for civil rights that are equal to his straight peers. Now, with that being said, I looked up Chris Sander and he seems like a pretty standard Republican, specifically one of those empty suits who derived their entire political identities from Trump. He even put a MAGA hat on his campaign sign, which is uh, embarrassing and pathetic to me. But on his website's bio, he describes himself as a MAGA Republican who supports low taxes and small government, as well as the Second Amendment. And he's also a against illegal immigration, but he also describes himself as a small business owner. So this seems to me like a pretty classic case of somebody putting their class interests above their own human dignity. And look, I get it. LGBTQ plus people can be capitalist xenophobes like everyone else, but to still associate yourself with a party who's offended by your very existence, to me, that just seems really 
wrong. It seems like it's against your own self-interest. I mean, the party has made it abundantly clear for decades now that they hate people like Chris Sander. And especially over the last year, they've made hating LGBTQ plus people their number one priority, but he still won't take the hint. So, I mean, I'm sorry that they're treating him this way. I think it's genuinely disgusting and I respect what he's trying to do here. But honestly, what did he expect? It's one of those instances where I have to be a prick and tell you, if you play with fire, you're gonna get burned. And in this situation, if you caucus with Republicans, you're gonna get slandered specifically as a groomer or a pedophile or both because that's what they do. They hate you. And anything that they can do to delegitimize you is what they're going to do. So Chris, leave the party. Like, I'm not saying that every single LGBTQ plus person in the country has to swear fealty to Democrats, but at least become an independent at a minimum. Because I mean, if this party doesn't respect your basic human rights, then you should respect yourself enough to tell them to go fuck themselves. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.